Father, we're so grateful that as we were sleeping this morning, you breathed into our lungs, <clears throat> opened our eyes so we could see the morning sun, dew on the grass. Thank you for providing breakfast on the table. greeting from family and the presence of your spirit. We thank you you've not left us and you never will. You pursued us in the beginning. You planted us. You're growing us. You're working all things for good. All things. We've never needed you more. We pray today that we would see and savor be comforted and strengthened by the love of Christ, that we would truly see how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Jesus for us, that you love us, you love us, you love us. And may that love today strengthen us intensely, make us to sing and hold on in the trials and especially to love others as we have been loved. To come now, O Holy Spirit, and express your love to me, taking a sinful, flawed man, that I might be helpful to your church. We pray for all those who are watching around the world, from Mexico to India, from Pakistan to Pakalet. Thank you that your love is equal for all. In Jesus' name. I pray. Amen. It's been said before that getting old is not for the faint of heart. There are many challenges faced by aging people like my mom in this season of her life who not only is struggling with a frustration with the things that she can no longer do, but struggling with the things that she can no longer remember. That's one of the reasons that she's in an assisted living home is now because she can't remember important things that she needs to remember. And by that lack of remembrance, she's in danger of getting hurt. When the Apostle Paul wrote to the Ephesian church, he wanted to make sure these believers did not forget the most fundamental reality in all of life. And that is how much God loves you and that all of hope is dependent on the love of that God has for us. So he prays, verse 17, I pray that you be rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. When Paul says that you've been rooted in love, he's going to the plant world. He's thinking of that time in life in which they were dead and lifeless, and God found them and picked their, their little fragile, lifeless lives up and planted them in the soil of the love of Christ. And so he tells them, he said, remember, you heard the gospel. You were living in sin. You were surrounded by a culture that lives in sin. And God planted you in the love of Christ, and <clears throat> all of a sudden your little plant arms, once brown, turned green, lifted high, and were embraced by Jesus Christ. And then you begin to grow. 
So here Paul changes metaphors, something we don't like to see in literature a lot, but Paul says, Holy Spirit's in charge of my life, I can change the rule. He mixes metaphors. He goes from the plant world to the architectural world, and he says, not only were you planted in soil, <clears throat> here he's talking about construction. You were built on a strong foundation. So he's sort of picturing their Christian life as this. God planted them. They began to grow. They were vulnerable. <clears throat> then, mixed metaphor, he puts them on an immovable foundation of Christ's love, and then they really, really begin to rise up like a mighty building. But what he wants them to understand is that from the beginning to the end, everything is dependent on Christ's love. So he's praying, you'll never forget it's all about Christ's love. When you were a plant, when you were a, a beginning building, and now it's Christ's love. Why does he do this? Because we are tempted so easily to forget that it's always about only explanation for any success and favor is the love of Christ. <clears throat> you tell a man <clears throat> who has sailed his ship foolishly into a storm and is about to perish spiritually. He's looked for every temptation <clears throat> and he's succumbed to just about every sin. He's lost about everything he valued. You tell that man that God loves him and it will change his life. And to quote my good friend, Hot Daddy, that's good, y'all. That's real good to tell everybody. God loves you no matter how foolish you've been. But somehow, after hearing that good thing, we forget. And we begin to believe little by little that something else is dependent on our hope. My works, my effort, my production, my perfection. And here Paul says, listen to me, little plant. Your hope is in God. Listen to me, rising building, your hope is in God. Listen to me, mature Christian leader, your only hope has been and will always be God's love for you. Not your performance, certainly not your perfection. You know, when I read this verse, I expect Paul to say, and I pray that you would have power to do epic things. That's what I'm expecting. I pray that God would fill you with the power so you could go change the world. That's what I'm expecting here. Doesn't do that. Now, he will next week. He will challenge us to do great things for God. But first things first, he said, I'm just praying you would have power to know his love. There is an order in the Christian life that cannot be reversed. And this is the order. Be, know, and do. You be his child. Know his love and then do his works. And if you ever get those mixed up and you could go try to earn, impress by skipping the being of his child and the knowing of his love and you're just going to go do things you're on your road fast and quick to burn out. I've met many a pastor whose passion is burned out. Eyes that were once filled with vision are now glazed over. A heart that once burned with passion is now paralyzed because they went so quickly to doing for God, they stopped knowing His love. 
The key to Christian endurance is always focusing on the great love of Christ. From beginning to end, it's enjoying His love. This week, the Christian community said goodbye to one of its greatest ambassadors in history. World-renowned teacher and defender of the faith. We call that a Christian apologist. Ravi Zacharias. To those who know him well, they would say, Ravi's remembered not by the fact that he knew the answer to every skeptic, which he did, but the incredible love for every skeptic that he had. When he would be in a hostile audience at all the secular universities of the world, and somebody asked him a difficult and hostile question, he never saw, you could People who travel with him, he didn't see the question first. He saw the person asking the question first, and he loved them. His heart overflowed with love because of how he encountered God's love in the beginning. When Ravi was 17 years old, he was living in India, in New Delhi. Multi-God society, therefore no real one-God society. He was good at sports, enough to play in college, but not good enough to go beyond college. And so there in, his, in the beginning of his college years, trying to find his self-image, no purpose in sports, no purpose in education, no purpose from, he didn't know God, he didn't know how to communicate with God, and at age 17, attempted suicide, tried to take his life and ended up in a hospital almost dead. And one day, and during his five days in that hospital, a man walked in with a little red New Testament and began reading to him from John chapter 14, where Christ says, I know the Father, and anyone who trusts in me, I will take them to the Father, and though they die, they will always live. Ravi heard that and gave his life to Christ. And not only did he give his heart to Christ that day, he gave by God's grace, and we're so thankful, he gave his mind to Christ, and he said, God, I will spend the rest of my life giving my mind to the fullest discovery of your knowledge that any man that's ever lived, and I think he lived that out. He eventually moved out of New Delhi to Canada and then to the States, but every time he was back in India, in New Delhi, he would drive, he said, every time he drove to that hospital, and he said, for at least 15 minutes, I would sit in my car and look at that hospital and thank God for the day that I discovered his love. As smart as he was, as all the knowledge he had, he always knew the foundation for everything is delighting in and being comforted by the love of Jesus Christ and not academic knowledge and worldly achievement. It's a very challenging thing to Stay focused on knowing the love of Christ. Look how Paul says it. He said, I pray that you may have power to know his love. Why, why do you need power to know love? Because there are forces at work in your life against you from knowing his love. It might be sin. It might be your calendar, your busyness. It might be worldly accumulations of things, but there are forces at work against you persuading you not to dive into 
submerge yourself in God's love. So Paul says, you need power just to not fall away from the daily pursuit of God's love. The most important thing you can ever do daily in your life is to plant your roots deep in the gospel soil of Jesus' love for you. In 1891, the Museum of Natural History asked that one of the sequoias in the redwood forest of California be cut down so that people could just get a size, get an idea. They would never be able to travel to California, but there being in the museum, they could see how big a sequoia is. And so it's there in the Museum of Natural History today. When they cut it down, the tree weighed 2 million pounds, was 55 feet in circumference, And it was approximately 1,400 years old, which meant that when it was planted, the Roman Empire was just falling. And it's been living through all these years. In order for Sequoia to be that big and to live that long, it has an elaborate root system. It only goes down 14 feet, which is not huge for trees, but only going down 14 feet, it stretches out for one square mile. And that's how it stands up. So this raises the question for us, where can I find a mile-wide, rich acre soil of Christ love? Because I want to plant my life in that if I'm going to stand tall like a sequoia. And I would recommend just going to the Bible, especially the Gospels, and looking at Jesus Christ. Look at the way that Jesus interacts with sinners. He loves them. He feeds them. He heals them. He teaches them. He dies on the cross for them. He rises from the tomb for them. And after he rises, he continues to meet with them. He transforms them and he commissions them. He makes disciples out of them. He goes to heaven for them and sends the Holy Spirit for them and promises to return for them. And you look at every one of them and you come to the same conclusion. They have done nothing. To deserve this kind of love. He just loves loving sinners. He loves loving you. So settle in your head once and for all. Jesus loves sinners. He loves transforming them. And that's the soil in which you plant your life. The love of Christ. The second place you go to plant your life is the church. Paul said, I pray that you would have power together with the Lord's holy people to grasp the love of Christ. There's no such thing as Lone Ranger Christianity. God didn't design you to to get a hold of this love of Christ in isolation, so He created the church where we would be able to depend upon one another. Again, if you look at the sequoias in Northern California and the Redwood Forest, those humongous tall trees, their root system, which branches out a mile, square mile, underneath the soil, those roots are linked like army men going to battle. They're often planted only six to ten feet apart so that they will hold each other up. So together with all the Lord's people is the way that we understand the love of God. I mean, you think about it. I know why you are hurting in your heart 
being isolated and in this very mysterious lockdown. You miss being with people. You don't miss a building. No Christian misses a building. We miss a people in the building. Mark Dever says the church is not a sacred place that we long to be in. The church is a sacred people we long to be with. That's what you're longing for, is to be locked, your roots, with other people's roots. You'll enjoy a lot, God a lot more with 10 people than you will by yourself, a lot more with 100 people than you will by yourself. It's people around you loving God increases your love for God. And so the purpose of all of our meeting, all of our singing, all of our praying, and all of our giving, and all of our teaching is that together we might know the love of Christ. It's why we gather. You'll never make it in a painful and demanding world unless you know the wide, high, long, deep love of Christ. Napoleon and his men, some years after the Spanish Inquisition was over, and you remember that was the time in which Catholic kings basically imprisoned and persecuted all non-Catholics, putting them to death, putting them in prison. And there was a prisoner that had been in prison during this time, and by the time Napoleon's men later found him, he had long since been dead, still chained to the wall, and above him he had written the word high. Below him on that wall, he wrote the word deep. To his right, he wrote the word wide. To his left, he wrote the word long. What sustained him in that prison cell was the wide, long, high, deep love of Christ. Paul prays as he does in this verse because he understands, he knows that we don't really know How much Jesus loves us. We're like a man who lives at the beach behind a massive sand dune in a small house. And his whole life he's heard crashing, beautiful, violent sounds beyond the dune. But has never ventured beyond the dune to see the ocean. And one day he climbs on top of the dune and sees a body of water sparkling blue, glistening with the sun. And it goes as far as to the right and to the left and out to the horizon as he can possibly see. And he's missed it all of his life. This is what Paul is concerned about, that everybody in the church is in danger of miscalculating the great love that Jesus Christ has for you. Now we don't know when Paul tried to make this geometric measurement of the immeasurable. Did he have the cross in mind? But it certainly is is easy to look at the cross and see the north, south, east, west love of Christ just in the cross, isn't it? How wide is the love of Christ? Well, its geographic boundaries know no limit in all of the world. Wherever people live, the love of God lives. 
His love is wide enough to include anyone in the world who will say yes to Christ. He loves, God loves the Afghan soldier as much as the American soldier. He loves the businessman in Istanbul as much as the store owner in Indianapolis. Worldwide love is what we're talking about when you look at the cross. You know, you look at a river, and oftentimes the wider that river goes, the shallower it gets. Not so with God's love. Wide, 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 and it's still deep, 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 including everybody in the world. It's almost like you can picture a massive urban city of 10 million people. They all live in these high-rise apartments, and over the top of them is this big ball of fire called the sun. And they spend their life living in these dark and shadowy apartments. But if all 10 million people decided at one time to leave their apartment and go to an open space outside in their city, all of them, if they wanted, would have access the same amount to the sun. Anybody who will come out and receive the Son of God is welcome. All across history, span history. How wide is it? You go from the beginning when God created now 6,000 years later. And everybody across history, God loves the same. Think about it. He loves you as much as he loves Isaiah, Moses, Abraham, Daniel, the Apostle Paul. Loves everybody in history the same. So wide is the love of Christ. There's no place he's unwilling to go. No person he's unwilling to love. No sin he's unable to forgive. No person he's unable to use. And no past he's unable to redeem. That's how wide the love of Christ is. Well, now let's talk about the length of God's love. So long as the love of Christ, that he has accepted sinners into heaven, they have lived 94 years in defiance and rebellion. And on their hospital bed, in their dying breaths, they said yes to Christ. And his love was long enough to wait for them. He'll wait on you and me. How long will he wait on us? We struggled, didn't it seem like, with the same sins over and over again. The same doubts, the same depressions, the same anger. And every time we ask forgiveness, how long is God's love? Every time we ask forgiveness, he gives us a new start and he's waited on us that day. His love lasts longer than my sinning. If my sin runs 10,000 miles, his love runs a mile longer. So that when I get to the end of my sin and I say, I have, out, I have outrun God's ability to forgive me. God says, no son, no daughter. I still have love left for you. When we talk about the vertical dimensions of God's love, I like to talk about the height and depth of God's love at the same time. It's the only way I can understand God's love is to say from the throne of the universe to the manger of Bethlehem, to the cross in Jerusalem, to a grave and a garden tomb, to the lowest pit among the most foul evil where the most hopeless sinner has fallen, there Jesus Christ goes to raise that man to life and give him a seat at the banquet table in heaven. That is the high, low, high love of Christ. No matter how far you have descended, look beneath you and you will see the arms 
of Christ. And then Paul concludes this prayer with one more reminder that he's not talking about knowing facts in your head. He says, I pray that you will have the ability to grasp how wide and long is the love of Christ, to grasp it, and to know this love, <laughs> it's a funny phrase to me, to know this love that surpasses knowledge. I love Paul. How can you know something if it's beyond your ability to know it? He will tell you at that moment, you have to move from knowing it in your head to experiencing it in your heart. That's how you know beyond knowledge. It goes to experience. Looking at Christ is not the same as believing facts. We must all move. We must all move from a basic understanding of gospel facts to a more intense leaning into the person of Jesus. Here would be my question. If knowing Bible facts could transform the human heart, why are there so many loveless lives in church every Sunday? Because it's not in here. It has to move from here to the heart. So what's it mean to have a true knowledge, an experiential knowledge of the love of Jesus? Well, this is what it means to experience Him. It's when you see Him forgiving you. It's when you hear Him receiving you. It's when you've given up on yourself, given up on God, turned away from God, and then He does something so unexpected, so undeserving, He intervenes in your life when you least deserve it. And at that moment, He saves you. He rescues you. And the experience of joy is so intense at that moment, you say, now I know beyond knowledge the love of Christ. So Paul is telling the Ephesian church and Hope Point and all friends of Hope Point, stop relying on gospel facts. Build on them, but move to Jesus himself and let him love you. My wife and I had an interesting encounter uh, Saturday, a week ago. We had been in Columbia, Lexington, all that afternoon working with, uh, visiting with Anna, who's about a week away from delivering our first grandbaby. And we were cleaning up their house a little bit, inside and out, running some errands. So we had worked all day. And that night, we got back around 11.30. We pulled into our driveway, and just making his way casually across the driveway and across into the edge of the grass was the most beautiful, the, the longest black snake I'd seen in quite some time. He just stretched, it seemed like six or, if I'd say six feet, just beautiful, moving through the yard. And we didn't, you know, he's a black snake, he's a friend of all, and so we just let him go, but... I parked the car, then I got in. I just wanted to watch him, what he was doing. And I really just wanted to make sure he wasn't going to be doing something dumb and hanging out in the road. So I was going to move him along in the road. But he went right into one of the bushes that 
greets you as you pull in my driveway. And no sooner did he go in that bush, all sorts of commotion, loud night commotion in the middle of the night, loud flapping and gawking, and out came four little birds. So he was moving toward their nest, and they flew out, but they were they were not babies. They were really like fledglings. They were just a day or so away from being able to fly on their own, but not tonight they couldn't. So they out of the bush, and now four of them are on the grass, and they start trying to hop in different directions, and out comes that snake. And I just had to watch and say, which one's he going to go for? That's the one I got to rescue first. So he was about three feet away from one of them, and I went over and picked him up, and I went and put him in a box, and then the others were probably 20 feet away from him. So that night, I put four of them in a box. I brought the box into the garage. It was a cold night, so they were all shaking, and I just didn't know what to do. So I just I put some paper in there and, and just left them in the garage, knew they'd be safe. But the next morning, I got up around 6.30, and they all seemed to be, three of them seemed to be okay. One of them was over on his side. And they were so vulnerable, you just thought, you know, just sort of, he can't, too much shock, <clears throat> maybe too much cold, and he's over on his side. And so I didn't know what to do, but I knew I had to get the others back to their mama. So I built a pine straw nest out on the grass outside, about three feet in circumference, and put three of them in there, and it had a little border, like four inches tall, and I just left them in there and just hoped that mama would come and not be scared by that man-made nest. But I took the little guy back in-house and I just said, you know, I don't think he's going to make it. And I, I just said to myself, I, I think my, my calling in life today is to just hold him. Is to just, is to just hold him until he dies. And I'm, I'm a tender person. He means a lot to me. And I just, so I, I made me a cup of coffee and got out my Bible. And I just said, I just feel like I just want to hold him as long as life is in him. So <clears throat> I held him. It looks like I'm holding him tight there. I'm not. It's just so gentle. But I wanted to warm him up. I could feel his little heart beating, and I knew he was warm. And he honestly looked peaceful. And, you know, this would bother any sensitive person. That you just, like, you don't want this to be your little Saturday morning calling, but it was, sort of went beyond that to me. I, it sort of was a metaphor to me of what we're all called to do in life. That we can't take away the pain of this world. We just hold each other while we're hurting we don't run from it. We, most of the time we can't explain it. We just, we just hold each other. And we trust that God is good and that we live in a pretty hurtful, painful world. Some of us live, some of us die. We hold each other and we just trust that God is good. Well, in my quiet time that morning, I could only get comfort by just, I just had to read. I knew a verse. I had to read it. And it's in 
Matthew 10, 29, I just turned there, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside of your father's care or outside of your father's permission. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. And I'm just holding that little bird. And I'm just thinking about all the things that are on my mind this morning. Hard things, leading this church, having a word to speak, responsibilities at home, my own flaws, my own sins, just looking at that bird, and as clear as I could hear anything apart from hearing an audible verse from God, I heard on my heart, impressed from the Lord as I'm reading this. Richard, that little bird is not worth much to anybody in Spartanburg today. They don't know about him. But you know about him. If he dies, no one cares. You care. And relatively speaking, you are worth to me Far more than that little bird. So Richard, would you take all the junk in your head, all the fears, all the regrets, all the pain, all the sorrow, and would you This is a picture when I took him back outside about two hours later. The life came back in him, and then he joined his brothers and sisters. In that pine straw, waiting for his mother to come feed him. And in all of that, holding that little bird that day, I heard God say to me, let me love you. And I'm never going to forget it. I used it last night. I'm laying on the bed, not happy with what I had to say today. Seemed to be all out of order. Nothing in my head linear. God, what do I do with all of this? I got all these facts and all this. I just heard God say, remember that bird. Let me love you. This is the message of God to everybody listening and watching today. This thing in your past that's crushing you. This present trial that is intimidating you. Unbelievable, immeasurable sorrow that you just are trying to hold on to yourself. Guilt, regret from years past that you try to say, what am I to do with it? I can't get away from it. And let yourself hear the words of God to you today. Let me love you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that your love is inexhaustible. The sun has been burning for millions of years and will burn for millions more. Millions more. It doesn't give out. Your love doesn't give out. And I thank you, Lord, that despite all of our sorrow and all of our anxiety, we have a clear understanding, demonstration of the wide, long, high, and deep love of Christ at the cross. When we were unworthy, 
when we were not looking, when we didn't fear you, respect you, no gratitude, just living to fulfill our bodily desires, hurting people, hurting ourselves. Jesus died because he loves us. So we thank you now through the Lord's Supper to just tell you, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for loving us. It's in your name I pray. Amen.